This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week anticipating what would be said in Tuesday's throne speech and the reintroduced spring budget. The summer sitting of the legislature comes amid a staffing crisis in our hospitals, especially in emergency wards and intensive care units. Our Zoomer squad is appealing for health care to not only only be the top priority of the Doug Ford PCs for his re-elected government, but to provide real fixes for a broken system. Peter Mugrich is senior editor of Zoomer magazine. Bill Van Gorder is chief policy and chief operating officer of CARP. And David Kravitz is chief membership officer at CARP and vice president here at Zoomer Media. I'd like to see some acknowledgement of health care as being a crisis and not just a box to be checked. Uh, I don't expect it to be the only topic. I'd like to see some sign that is the paramount topic uh, because the system is in collapse. It literally is in collapse. And it would be nice for them to acknowledge that and to bring in some uh, emergency measures or to declare in their language some state of emergency, maybe short of panic, but emergency. Um, I'm not optimistic it'll be treated that way, but it should be. Bill, you know, last week I was talking to Dr. Kevin Smith, the head of UHN, and he was saying, yes, it's very problematic, it's challenging, but he stopped short of crisis. Are we overblowing this, perhaps? Well, we certainly aren't from the point of view of our CARP members who are telling us that we are in crisis as uh, David uh, has said. Uh, they're saying to us the premier ran on a platform of I'm the get it done premier. They want to see him take immediate action and promises of things that are going to uh, be done in the next three years or five years doesn't wash if you're 75 or 80 years old and waiting to, to uh, get uh, treated, either in wait times or lining up in emergency wards or finding emergency wards are, are even uh, closed. It is a crisis in the view of the patients who need to use it. And that just seems to indicate that the politicians and the, and the bureaucrats in charge don't really understand how the public is finding how the health system these days. Peter, you know, one of the things that people have said is that there's not a magic bullet. So I'm wondering, uh, what can they do that would take effect so quickly? They've ordered the colleges to come up with a plan for certifying foreign trained professionals sooner. Uh, I don't know how much that will relieve the system. Yeah, um, that that seems like it would be a little bit longer term than than immediate. Um, I, I guess what they can do is is start recruiting. Like the the uh, U.S. states have been recruiting nurses for years, offering you know um, you know uh, higher pay, uh, relocation costs, training costs, 
um, you know, um, apartments, condos, that kind of thing, like sweetening the pot to attract uh, people to work in your province. I, I think we're going to see that for sure, because um, it's just a matter of supply. Like the, if if nurses are retiring and, and there's just not enough to... Um, to staff, you know, you know, the, the salaries will go up, and there there will be sort of, um, you know, uh, hospitals will have to sweeten the pot somehow, you know, and and I think that's that's an immediate solution. We'll see. We'll go around and and uh, give you an opportunity to wrap up. So, Peter, starting with you, what are you leaving us with? Well, just the the we've talked about healthcare and and the nursing crisis, but there's also inflation and uh, economic like a uh, recession coming so those are two other things that will be on fourth agenda coming up okay bill we're looking in the throne speech and the following for a change in the upper echelons of the bureaucrats uh, uh, to a real change to make sure that we've got action-oriented uh, people politicians come and go it's really the bureaucrats that need to step up to the plate and fix the problems that are in front of us. Uh, David, what are what are you looking at as we head into this? I want to hear week? some specificity around the word "it" in "get it done," and I want to hear that it's healthcare, and I want to hear some measure. And by the way, whatever happens to those sixteen thousand PSWs that were promised in last year's throne speech by April? Have they ever reported in on how they did on that? Good question. They promised it last April, last October, and in last October's throne speech, 16,000 new PSWs by April. Hello. Where are they? Where are they? David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer of CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media. Bill Van Gorder, Chief Policy and Chief Operating Officer of CARP. And Peter Mugrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. The reintroduced budget was effectively the same document as was delivered in the spring, but with a 5% increase to disability payments and a one-time payout for parents to use on kids' education. As for for the throne speech, it was acknowledged that healthcare workers are exhausted and the hospital emergency department system is strained. But there were no short-term solutions offered to provide relief and better service. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There are not many COVID-19 related mask mandates left, and the remaining ones, it seems, won't last much longer. This past week, we learned that school children will not be required to mask up when they go back to class next month. And Canadian Blood Services removed its mask mandate last month, which prompted a backlash that had a lot of donors canceling their appointments. And now we are in the midst of a critical blood shortage. Joining Libby on Monday to discuss the future of mask mandates, Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. The dynamic we've seen for, for many months now, it, it's been uh, since, since uh, March or early April, that most of those mandates have come off. And really, they're only present now in clinical settings. So if you're the kind of person who works in a hospital, goes into a hospital or clinical setting regularly, you know, Masks are going to be really regular and, and, you know, not a lot has changed for you, but pretty much everybody else in the population, they're much more of a rarity now. So, you know, that is 
um, you know, something that may change in the fall uh, in terms of, you know, you know, I don't think mandates necessarily, but people's personal preference. But, you know, throughout the seventh wave now over the summer, it's something we've definitely been thinking of and, and certainly reading what's going on with Canadian Blood Services. Like many organizations, it's as difficult, you know, balancing, you know, putting a mandate on to, to wear masks and the, the, you know, how that's going to impact the population they work with versus not having it. And, you know, every organization is going to just have to do that risk analysis of their own business or of their own, you know, well-being of their employees. And, and we're doing this as well in public health. You know, we offer many clinical-oriented services, and we offer various things with, you know, populations that are marginalized and vulnerable. And we're trying to, you know, think to ourselves, how do we keep these people safe while at the same time making them feel comfortable? And for some people, particularly those with mental health challenges, a variety of things, you know, masks or at least you know, enforcing them in, in the in the case where people, you know, very, very strongly don't want to wear one, it, you know, it's a challenge. So Canadian Blood Services obviously, you know, is, is has their had their reasons for making the decision they did. And of course, us being outside those organizations, we, we don't know those in-depth reasons, but certainly, you know, I think it's reasonable for them to reconsider it. How worrying is that? That I mean, I'm I'm reading it's it's not completely up to date. It's like only four days worth of O positive five days worth of O, seven days worth of A positive. I mean, how worrying is that? You know, for sure. I mean, for most Canadians, of course, you, you don't need a blood product until you really do. And, and that's one of the great things about having Canadian blood services and the people who volunteer so regularly. I mean, these are real, real regular heroes we don't talk about a lot. So, you know, of course it is, it is concerning. Um, mostly, you know, for, for hospitals and for trauma folks and, and having worked in some situations where we didn't have the blood we need, absolutely. It, 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 uh, it's absolutely life-saving. And, and I would hope hearing people hearing this conversation would go out and volunteer. And of course, Canadian Blood Services, figuring out their mask policy is going to be an important part of that. The mask mandate, we just learned, will not be in place for kids in the fall. And, and yes, it's true that kids are like less likely to uh, get serious disease, but uh, the strains that we've seen are incredibly contagious. Does that worry you at all? Of course, that is concerning. And as you pointed out, most kids aren't going to get very sick. So, you know, that doesn't concern me that much. But certainly some children who are severely immunocompromised, certainly we can imagine teachers are going to be concerned about this. More importantly, though, frankly, you know, uh, Kids gather, of course, in schools, bring things back to their families. Either those families may be vulnerable themselves or you know, elderly members of the family. And again, it really isn't just about COVID. It's about all kinds of things. So, you know, from a strictly public health perspective, would it be better if everyone continued to wear masks both now and in the school year to come? Sure. But, you know, that really isn't practical, you know, for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, in public health, we consider social construct as well as medical construct. And so, you know, I think the idea of, of, of vigorously enforcing masks in schools is really just not likely to happen. Um, I think there will be a lot more, whether it's kids or, or teachers wearing masks, you know, probably later into the fall once we see how things go. But, you know, it, it, it's something that's evolving and, and Canadians, Ontarians have shown themselves to be flexible and the government has shown itself to be able to make decisions you know, based on, on the evidence and what's going on. So, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable decision to make right now, and we'll see how things evolve. Dr. Barry Pecos, York Region's Medical Officer of Health. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, more on the blood shortage in this country and what we can do about it. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We here in Canada are in the midst of a severe shortage of donated blood. According to Canadian Blood Services, there is less than a week's worth of blood for all types. O positive, O negative, A positive, A negative, B positive, and B negative. How did we get to this point, and where are the regulars who always roll up their sleeves? Libby asked this question of Rachel Solomon, a spokesperson for Canadian Blood Services. Since July 1st, our collections have been steadily decreasing. This is due to kind of a perfect storm of factors that's been added to by the loss of 31,000 donors since the start of the pandemic. And here at Canadian Blood Services, we know that summer is a challenging time for our collections. But since this is the first summer since 2019, where there are no or very few restrictions on travel and activity, people in Canada are just kind of getting out and enjoying the return to the pre-pandemic activities, summer travel, hanging out with their friends and their families. So they're not making the time or they're just forgetting to come in and donate. And we've seen this big dip in donors over the summer. Um, We do currently have 57,000 open appointments that must be filled before the end of August across Canada. So we're asking everybody. If you're a new donor, a returning donor, please come out, book your appointment and donate. There was quite a bit of backlash online uh, because Canadian Blood Services removed the mask mandate and there were people who said that they were very surprised by that and they felt uncomfortable with it and were canceling their appointments. How, How big a factor was that? Although masks are no longer required, they're welcome in our environment and they're available to anybody that chooses to wear one. Um, We are a unique organization where we provide life-saving products to hospitals, but we're not a hospital or a healthcare setting. So as a community setting, we were able to shift from the mandatory to the optimal measures in the recent months since we've seen the restrictions eased in many other community venues. But um, we do continue to ensure that surgical masks and N95s are available to our staff, volunteers, visitors, and donors, anybody who wants one. Um, And I'd encourage any potential donors that are maybe a little bit wary of this to visit blood.ca to view all of our wellness measures in place at our donation event. How big a factor do you think that was, though? Do you think that that was a key to losing all those donors? Well, there's various reasons why we've lost donors. Um, I'm not sure the big impact of the masking, but we've seen a lot of loss of donors um, since July 1st before it was even announced. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Mike in Toronto. Hi, Mike. Hello, Libby. I um, tried to book an appointment to give blood today. Uh, All the clinics were booked, which I find very encouraging. I was able to get an appointment uh, for 10.30 a.m. at one of the downtown spots. But um, at first I was thinking, why is there a shortage when the clinics are fully booked? But of course, the pandemic had a great deal to do with that. The masking, the restrictions, etc. But I find it it is encouraging to see that people are stepping up and the clinics are getting heavily booked. And I hope that continues uh, in in the near future. That that is good to hear. And you're okay with um, getting your blood taken while a lot of people are unmasked? 
I don't care if I have to wear a mask or not. That's, that's a minor thing. The main thing is blood supply is low. We all have to chip in. Okay. Thank you for that, Mike. Yeah, well, uh, there you go, Rachel. So um, is is that the situation around the province where some of the clinics are actually full? Yes. So actually, since Friday, we have seen a massive uptick in our appointments. And that's all thanks to our generous blood donors booking and keeping their appointments. So I just want to say thank you to anybody that's booking their appointment, like the last person. So thank you so much. Okay. And um, out of all these shortages on blood types, uh, I guess the one for O is the most severe because that's used the most, right? Correct. Yes. Our um, O blood types are used in most trauma situations where there's not time to type somebody's blood. Um, So that one's usually needed the most as our universal donor. Mm -hmm. And is is that both O positive and O negative or just one of them? That's both of them. We need both of them all the time. Of course, the O negative can donate to anybody and the O positive can donate to all positive blood types. But we do currently still need all blood types. So we're encouraging anybody, book your appointment, no matter your blood type. Rachel Solomon, spokesperson for Canadian Blood Services. There is more information on how to donate at blood.ca. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Tennis fans received some big news this past week as Serena Williams confirmed she will retire from professional tennis sometime after this year's U.S. Open. The 40-year-old 23-time Grand Slam champion will wrap up her career at the tournament she first won back in 1999 after turning pro in 1995. Serena has won the most Grand Slam singles titles by any player in the open era and the second most of all time behind Margaret Court's 24 titles. There have been lively debates about whether Serena is the greatest athlete of all time, let alone the greatest woman tennis player. Serena Williams is a trailblazer, not just for women, but people of color in tennis. The news broke as Serena was competing here in Toronto at the National Bank Open. Libby spoke about Serena's legacy in tennis with Simon Bartram, head coach of Toronto Lawn Tennis Club and coach for Tennis Canada, and Carl Hale, tournament director for the National Bank Open. Well, I think it was expected. Everybody knew that uh, the retirement was imminent, um, but we're really excited to have her here. It's the last time we expect a very warm reception for her from all the fans and, you know, wishing her well in, in that match. Simon, uh, you have coached a lot of uh, young girls and, and, and women. How would you say, how important is Serena's example? Well, I can't imagine she's anything other than an, a, a, a huge uh, example and uh, influence for every, all the players I've coached. My goodness, she's, she's 40 years old. She's been doing this forever. Uh, her and her sister both have been... Um, uh, I've been the, the forefront of the women's tour for so long and been so good for so long. They are, um, and they're, and, and Serena's accomplishments are, as, as you mentioned at the outset, 23 Grand Slam titles. She's been chasing that 24th, you know, to tie Margaret Court's record for, for a few years now. And we're sort of all cheering her on to get that to happen. And it just seems like, you know, here, I guess she's giving herself one more shot at the U.S. Open, perhaps, but, um, 
Yeah, I mean, all the all, all the, to your, answer your question. Yeah, all the girls are they just marvel at her level um, for so many years, and it's a, it's 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 an amazing level. She plays at a very high level. Has has played at a very high level for a long time. The last time she won a Grand Slam was in 2017, and she was pregnant. Simon, <laughs> I don't believe I know. I, I can remember the chatter at that time too. Um, yeah, a, a, an amazing accomplishment. Like again. Um, to what she's what she's been able to do, um, and and uh, that playing playing an event, winning a Grand Slam title when you were pregnant is is quite remarkable. Um, and um, and yeah, a lot of the girls just kind of shake their heads with like, how is that even how is that even possible? And, and um, again, another one of her phenomenal uh, achievements. It's a new thing altogether for uh, women who've had children to come back. And to play. And, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, in Serena's case, her, her pregnancy was dangerous. And, uh, part of it is that she's been given a go ahead that it is going to be all right for her to try to have another child. But uh, is that, um, a major, I, I mean, I would think it's a major evolution, Carl. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, uh, Tatiana Maria, who's a semifinalist at Wimbledon, has two children. It was actually her birthday yesterday, and she's she's here playing the event as well. But you know, there's there's quite a few players that have children on the tour uh, on the on the women's tour, and it's great to see. Um, we want to encourage it because we want these players to continue their careers because they they love playing so much, you know. And with Serena, you know, we see her with her daughter after the match. She tweeted something out yesterday, and it's just nice to see. You know, mothers with their with their children, and as everybody knows, it's really important that they have the time and they they can do it successfully on the tour. Uh, Serena and her sister Venus, they are trailblazers for women of color uh, in the sport, people of color, and uh, they come from very modest backgrounds. Uh, there's that movie out of Compton. Uh, in California, which is the the neighborhood that they grew up in, and how they broke into tennis, which was pretty lily white. Uh, Carl, uh, you're native Jamaica, right? Yes, that's correct. And so, what are your thoughts on that aspect? Well, you know, we we were talking about it, and uh, you you know, we will never see in our lifetime, you know, two sisters that have come out of the ghetto in the U.S. to be iconic tennis players so this is you know it's never happened before and they had such long you know amazing careers you know winning all of these grand slam titles i think it's i think it's time to celebrate her because she's done so much for so many people and if you if you as a tournament director we get a lot of notes um to give to her you know and people just they just love serena Carl Hale, tournament director for the National Bank Open, and Simon Bartram, head coach of Toronto Lawn Tennis Club and coach for Tennis Canada. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. 
Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Kathy in Etobicoke phoned about increasing responsibilities for pharmacists during the healthcare worker shortage. I would like to say that absolutely not for authorizing the pharmacists to do more than they're already doing um, in terms of taking on patients. Um, they're overworked as it is. So first of all, they'd have to redesign all of the shops so they'd have some room for the patients to come in. And two, if they're not increasing their staff, you're going backwards instead of forwards. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week is Arlene in Lindsay, who phoned about salaries for nurses during the current shortage in Ontario hospitals. As far as I'm concerned, the nurses are not paid more than enough. They should get thousands and thousands of dollars more. These people are the first people that you meet when you go into a hospital. And they are always gracious, and they're always right there and working hard. We pay rock stars. We pay entertainers thousands and thousands of dollars. They're billionaires. They've got planes and houses, etc., as you know. And these poor nurses, nobody cares about them. And it's time that we really look at these people. They're humans, okay? And the fact that they are on the front lines and doing this, it slays me. Like, honestly, they are treated horribly. And they are disrespected, etc. I've seen it personally when I was in the hospital. I actually went in a few months ago. And the way people talk to these nurses, you can't pay them enough. I know I'm being emotional here, but as far as I'm concerned, they're worth their weight in gold. And the government needs to smarten up because if you don't have nurses, you don't have anything. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. And call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.